0: We're presently considering these more personal comments that Paul is directing to young Timothy. And in verses 11 down to 16, he is exhorting this young man with regards to certain things that he ought to take on board with regard to his own life. And we're presently here at verse 12, thinking about what it is to be an example of the believer's an example of the believers. And last time we thought about the essence of that, and notice that that word example itself is translated in a number of other ways in our English Bible, and that helps us to understand a little bit of what it actually means to be an example of a believer. For example, that word is translated as example uh, sample as the word print referring to the print of the nails, the impression of the nails that were left in the hands of the Savior, and then also the word figure and pattern and fashion. And what it teaches us is that in being an example, we are to follow a pattern. It is not left to us to work out for ourselves how we are an example and to choose the way for ourselves. Rather, there is an example set for us to follow. There is a pattern that we are to follow and it is that of Christ and that thought of the print of the nails in his hands brings us to think about the print of a crucified Christ upon our lives and we highlighted galatians chapter 2 verse 20 being a key text i am crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but christ liveth in me and the life that i now live in the flesh i live by the faith of the son of god Who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. There's a change. The believer is indeed to be an example, like those Christians who were in Thessalonica, where we read that they were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. And that takes in a considerable reach. Thessalonica was in the region of Macedonia, that is true, but Achaia reaches away down to southern Greece, right down to where Corinth was. So, that's taking in a vast uh, track of of land, and Paul says, your example of following Christ is known throughout all of this area among the believers. Paul said, "I, I hardly need to speak about you, hardly need to speak anyway, because your example has taught others so much and, and uh, that ought to be indeed what we seek to be also. There's sometimes we don't get speaking a word to people. We might want to speak to them and bear witness of Christ, but maybe sometimes that is not possible. The circumstances do not permit that. But our lives can speak. Our conduct can speak. And, and it does. We're epistles known and read of all men. So, our, our very lives and how we conduct ourselves can convey a message in those circumstances Whether there's something different about us in the way that we conduct ourselves. Now, what we want to do uh, here with the rest of this verse is to think about the extent of being an example of a believer, the extent. There's six areas of life that's listed here by the Apostle Paul in which we are to be an example And you'll notice them in verse 12. They're first of all in word, and then in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So there's six areas. We're going to take the first three of them this morning, divide them in two, and consider them over a couple of weeks with the help of the Lord. So we want to work our way through these first three. We're to be an example in word. And then an example in conversation, and we'll make the distinction between those two terms in a moment. And then also uh, today, we'll think about an example in charity and what that uh, means and how we're to understand that. So if we go back there to the first of these six, we are to be an example in word, in all that we say in public and all that we say in private. The Lord puts great stress upon the words of his people, just like he puts great stress upon his own word. The Scripture tells us that he has exalted his word above his name, Psalm 138. And that's quite a statement when you think about that. He's exalted his word above his name. His word means a lot. He keeps his word. That's why we can trust his promises. If God was to fail in one on one occasion and not keep his word in one circumstance. No matter how small that might be, how could anyone ever trust the Lord then with regards to anything else that he would say? His word is important. He puts great store in keeping his word, and he also puts great store upon you and I with regards to our words. It's interesting to observe that this, of the seven things that God hates, three of them have to do with our words. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, you will find those uh, seven things listed. There's that little formula that starts at these six things, doth the Lord hate yea, seven, or an abomination unto him. Proverbs chapter 6, if you want to look it up. And then the list goes, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, he that soweth discord among brethren. So out of the seven, Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, is that set of uh, verses and statements. Out of those seven things that God hates, three of them have to do with our words. I would suggest to you that if it was left to you or I to make a list of seven things that God hates. Well, we might put in words, but we'd just put it in once. We could think of other things. And we would say, Oh, God hates that, and God hates the other thing, and God hates that sin. And maybe, maybe words wouldn't get in at all, and in, in some lists. And if it did get in, possibly would just get in once. But is it not remarkable that when the scripture and the writer is writing under inspiration of the Spirit of God. So, these seven things that God has said to hate, that three of them, three out of seven, have to do with words, does that of itself not underscore the importance of our words? Those three there to repeat them, a lying tongue, is the first one that is mentioned with regards to our words that he hates and then down at the end, verse 19 of that section, a false witness that speaketh lies, he that soweth discord among brethren. So those are the three things that are referencing our words there in the seven things that God hates. And that in itself ought to underscore in our mind, words are important. They're important to God Keeping your word is important to God. A believer keeping their word is important to God because it reflects upon the Lord. As I say, the Lord keeps his word and puts great store upon it. You can trust his word. You can stake your all upon his word. His word will never fail. His promises will never fail. Not one of them has ever failed, nor ever will. And therefore, we can stake our all upon his word. And then when we think, well, we are to imitate Christ. He's the pattern here that we were thinking about last Lord's Day. He's the pattern that we are to follow. So I'm to be like him. My words are to be important. My words are to be truthful words. I'm to keep my word. That's what it will be to be an example of a believer with regards to our words. A lying tongue, a false witness that speaketh lies, he that soweth discord among brethren. All of these things are contrary to what the Lord would have us to do, and therefore we ought to, to be careful. In the pastoral epistles, those written to Timothy and also to Titus, you'll read about Paul emphasizing the need of sound doctrine or sound words. You'll also read about sound mind, in those pastoral epistles and you'll read about sound speech. Titus chapter two verse eight speaks about sound speech. There's a there's a speech, a way of speaking. If you want to just turn over a few pages there from first Timothy. Uh, over to Titus chapter 2. We'll take the seventh verse as well. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, here's the same thought that we're thinking upon now. In doctrine showing on corruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And there, sound speech is particularly uh emphasized in the light of, the, of living before the unconverted. He that is of the contrary part, he that doesn't agree with you, he that has no time for Christ, no time for the Bible, no time for the gospel, he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. So even in how we, we speak and keeping our word And being truthful in all that we say is a witness in itself. As I say, we mightn't sometimes get to speak. Other times we can get to speak. And when we do, let people observe. There's somebody that that keeps their word. And it's a reminder that God keeps His word also. If you think about two places where... That, that thought is also referenced. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. So, putting away lying, well, we read about the lying tongue that God hates, speaking the truth with his neighbour. We've thought there also about that list of things that God hates, sowing discord among brethren speaking the truth with his neighbor. That ought to be the characteristic of our speech. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So it is to be seasoned with salt. There's to be a a flavor to it, a particular flavor to it. And the the flavor to the Christian speech is truthfulness. 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 That's going to be the flavor that is going to be found in the Christian speech. We live in a day when it seems that lying is is second nature. It's commonplace. People don't seem to put much store upon their word at all and can promise many things and no intentions ever of of keeping their word. That ought not to be a Christian. A Christian ought to be an example of a believer. So, not only must we speak the truth, but there must also be a a pleasantness about the Christian's speech. We ought to speak in a fashion that is wise and prudent, pleasant, profitable, edifying. Certainly, we ought not to speak in a way that's filthy, foolish, or corrupt. Remembering every idle word has to be accounted for. That ought to sober us up. Every idle word Christian has to be accounted for. Scripture teaches that, so be careful what we say and how we how we say it, that we might speak the truth so that's the first area that is mentioned here in the twelfth verse that we are to be an example in in word, then come on to the second one, an example in conversation, and that word has a much broader meaning in Scripture than it does today, because we know today conversation is referring to spoken communication, maybe even written communication as well. We might call that a a conversation of sorts. But evidently, these two words are different, and that old word conversation, an old English word, has a much broader meaning. For example, it signifies manner of life, conduct, behavior, now everywhere it appears in our English Bible it's translated by the word conversation as to the, the noun. But if you go back there to chapter three of First Timothy and verse fifteen, it's a, a verse we, we highlighted a number of times when we were working our way through um, chapters two and three. And if you pick out the word behave in First Timothy chapter three, verse fifteen, this is the verb that lies behind the word conversation. And it says there 1 Timothy three fifteen But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So that's the the verb that is connected here with the word conversation. It's a word to do with not so much your spoken word but your behaviour. We're to be an example in behaviour, in manner of life, in conduct, in all that we that that we do. And again, if you, if you think of a couple of places where that appears in the New Testament, you will see that this is uh, how indeed we are to understand it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, For ye have heard, this is Paul writing to those Galatian believers, For ye have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jewish religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Now, Paul is evidently not just talking about his words Although he said things, he's taking in his whole conduct. You have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jews' religion. In other words, how I lived before I was saved, when I was following after Judaism and worshiping according to the beliefs of Judaism. You've heard about my conversation. And the news that went throughout the Christian church, was not so much Paul's words but his conduct his actions his persecuting zeal the manner in which he treated those believers causing them to blaspheme casting them into prison putting some of them to death so it's evident there in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13 that the word conversation has to have a much broader meaning it's taking in Paul's whole manner of living prior to his conversion and how they had heard about it. And he goes on to say that, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. So it's referring to our general conduct. We're going beyond our words. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22 says that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts that he put off the former conversation, the old man. And if the previous reference there in Galatians was talking about Paul's life before his conversion, well, here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, it's speaking about us all. There was a manner of living prior to our conversion. Paul says, put it off, put it away from you. It's not something that ought to be seen about you. There's a change that is to come over that person who is in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a former conversation. That suggests that it's in the past. It's not something that's current. If it's a former conversation, it's a former manner of living that is associated with the old man. Prior to regeneration taking place in a, in a believer's heart and a new nature being given to them, Paul says there's something there that marked the old nature, the old man, a way of living, a manner of living that has to be put off now. can't be seen upon us now. It's not, it doesn't sit right. It's not honoring to the Savior who has redeemed us and put a new nature within us, put a spirit within us. So there is indeed a manner of living that is to be put off, and a new manner of living, obviously then, that is to be taken on. Would you be surprised to, to know that the, the word that, that um, has that lies behind that is actually the idea of, of turning hither and thither? I said it was the idea of behavior. And in that word behavior, in the verb, part of it is made up by the word to turn hither and thither, to turn around. And the thought is, you see, of, well, isn't that your your general conduct? Everything you turn your hand to in the course of a day or a week, general behavior. It's not something just specific and narrow in life. And you can say, well, it only applies to that. But it's the idea, whatever you turn your hand to, and you know that that expression appears elsewhere in the Word of God as well. Whatever your hand findeth to do, do with all your might. And there's other places as well you could go through uh, that come to mind where the thought is of, of, of uh, turning hither and thither. Isn't there that little phrase that was used with regards to the, the, one of the kings of Israel? I was busy here and there, hither and thither. And, that, and that's just the thought about it, just the general busyness of life, the general circumstances of life, whether we're in the house of God among the people of, of God or whether we're not, whether we're outside uh, going about those daily tasks or weekly tasks, a Christian is to be an example of a believer in all their conduct and all their behavior. So it refers to all the, all the circumstances of, of life, whatever we turn her hand to. Is that not one of the the greatest stumbling blocks for the unconverted often? The less than exemplary lives of believers? Now, sometimes it's said without warrant. There's sometimes the ungodly just throw things up because they want an excuse to reject Christ and have nothing to do with the gospel. And sometimes it is, it is without warrant. We, we acknowledge that, but many times it is justified. Many times it is justified. And where it is justified, it's a, it's a scandal. It causes a stumbling block. That's what the word scandal means. It comes from the word stumbling block in the Greek uh, language. Turn over to Ephesians chapter uh, three, five Ephesians chapter five and some verses at the beginning of that that chapter that has the thought here of our, our general conduct. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sweet and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savour. So our our walk. Our general conduct here is in view. Verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness or foolish talking or jesting, which are not convenient but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that nor, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No, know we're to be an example in our conversation, in our conduct, in our, our manner of life. And then the third one here that's found in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12 is charity. We're to be an example in charity. That word needs a little bit of explanation in this uh, day and age as well, because the old English word charity originally referred to a Christian's love one for another. Now, we understand the word charity today in a different way, but we need to go back to how our English, uh, the translators used that word and why they used that word when our English Bible was translated, or authorized version. And back then, it referred to the Christian's love for one another. That's what Paul is here saying to Timothy. Timothy, be an example of believers in your love one for another, in your love for fellow believers. That's what he has in mind. And that was the meaning of the, of the word charity up until the beginning of the 1900s or so. And then it started to change. In fact, the the it started to shorten a little bit because instead of referring to a Christian's love one for another, it started to be used as a reference to the expression of that love for one another so that we get the idea of of charity, the practice of charity. And then it is shortened right down just to the word charity now. But it started out as a love one for another then that would manifest itself in seeking to help others who are in need, fellow believers who are in need. And you think of that in the Christian church. We'll come on to deal with that a little bit in chapter 5 here of First Timothy, where Paul speaks about looking after the widows in the church. But you know that that was a, something that was very prevalent in the, the Christian church, looking after those who were in need. But that that came out of the love that what they had one for another. There was something that, that first of all went before, before they started thinking about the needs of others and helping others in times of need, there was a love they had one for another. And that's what the word charity originally means. The love that Christians had one for uh, another. Now, that's the same word that is here. It's translated charity in our English Bible, but it is exactly the same word that refers to the Lord's love for sinners. But as far as I can see in the New Testament, I may be wrong, and if I am, you can point that out to me, but you don't read about the Lord's love for sinners being described as charity. There's a, our English um, translators are trying to make a distinction here, I believe. It's referring to a believer's love for one another. There are those places where the Bible speaks about God's love. It's the word agape here in the New Testament language. It's the strongest of, of love. There's, there's four different words for love in the, the, the New Testament language. And agape is the strongest of them. And that's the word that is used of God's love for sinners, God's love for you and me. And you think of some of those great texts in Scripture where uh, that is, is mentioned, the love of God. Uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, particularly, it appears there in a couple of consecutive uh, verses where it talks about the love of God. And it's this word, uh, agape, it's, it's a strong word, as I say. It says, because the love of God is shed abroad. Romans 5 and verse 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the same word, So there is a usage of that word that refers to the Lord's love for sinners. But then there's also the use of that word. And here again, there is the thought you see of us aspiring to imitate Christ, where the believer is spoken of as exercising that love one for another. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 13. The word charity runs the whole way through that. And my understanding of that portion is that it is referring to a Christian's love one for another. That's why the word charity appears there so often, and other places as well in the New Testament. But there's a very prominent chapter where the word charity is found in in numerous verses. It's referring to how Christians conduct themselves one toward another. There is to be a love one for another that little phrase itself appears numerous times. John particularly uh, is someone who is highlighting that. He, he mentions the new command that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples in the upper room in John chapter uh, 13 and verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John thirteen 34, thirty four thirty thirty three thirty four. But you could follow on through John's writings, isn't there? I think it's five times in the first epistle of John itself that you find that phrase, uh, love one another. It, it appears in his second epistle as well, but It's a a phrase that John was using repeatedly, and there he is recording how the Savior uttered those words in the upper room and said, this new commandment I gave you, it's a commandment. Love one another. And that's what this word charity is referring to, and the use of it by our English translators in the Bible, it's referring to a love that believers are to have one toward another. Another. We are to to aspire to be like Christ. We've said it's the same word that's used of His love for us. He, he would have us to love Him. You remember that exchange that took place between Peter and the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 21? Remember those times where Peter was recommissioned by the Lord, and the Lord asked him, Lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? On the first two of those occasions, the Lord used that stronger term, agape. Peter, do you love me? That's why Peter was so reluctant to answer the way, because the Lord had asked him, Peter, do you have the strongest of love for me? Peter had learned his lesson. He wasn't as boastful as he was before. Just a little while before, as you know, he boasted, I'll I'll die with you. And that didn't work out. Rather than dying, he denied the Lord and he did it to a little girl. And he went out and he wept bitterly. But the Lord wasn't finished with Peter. That's an amazing uh, truth that uh, is applicable to us all. The Lord wasn't finished with him. The Lord didn't throw him in the scrap heap. And say, Peter, it's done. You're finished. There's no way back. Peter wept, sorrowed over it, and the Lord restored him, and the Lord recommissioned him. And he's saying there in John twenty-one verse fifteen, that sequence of verses and ex- that exchange is recorded for us. And the Lord said to him, "Lovest thou me more than these?" Are you going to boast more than these, more than these disciples. Or maybe it was the fishing that he had gone back to. But the Lord says, Peter, do you love me more than these? No, Peter was reluctant now. No no more boasting. No more boasting. The Lord had sanctified to him his troubles. And Peter's the better man for it. Oh, it would have been better if he hadn't denied the Lord, but he did. He can't get away from that fact, but he's a better man. He's learned from it, and he's, he's, he's reluctant. And when Peter replied, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, Peter used a lesser word, a weaker word. It's the word that we get brotherly love from, or the word Philadelphia, phileos, friend. <clears throat> it means friend. But it's a lesser verb. It's not as strong as a That's strong love. That's the love that God has for sinners. And we're going to think about a particular character to that in a moment. But Peter won't use that stronger term here when the Lord's recommissioning him. Peter uses a weaker term. Lord, you know I love you. He's a chastened man. He's a better man. He's more careful about his words now. And what he come out of his mouth just a little beforehand. And on those first two occasions when the Lord asked him, you know that he asked him three times. On the first two of those occasions, the Lord uses the stronger word. And then on the last occasion, the Lord used the weaker word. Peter, if you can't bring yourself to say the stronger word, well, do you love me with a weaker word? And that's why Peter was able to say to him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love you. And Peter used the weaker word all on each one of his replies. There is a difference. What's the difference in the two words? What is it that ought to characterize our love for one another? We're to aspire to that love that Christ had for sinners. Well, what's the characteristic of the love that Christ had for sinners? Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Isn't that an outstanding feature of Christ's love for us? He sacrificed himself. And this is the idea you see then of what, how we know charity today. Giving from yourself and giving unconditionally con- and sacrificially. Because that's the mark of Christ's love for his people. He loved them sacrificially. He gave himself for them. He loved them unconditionally. He didn't love us because of who we are or what we've done or who we would become either. He didn't look away down through the corridors of time with foreknowledge and say, oh, I foresee so and so is going to believe on me and going to do this or that, and I love them now. No, he loved them all unconditionally. You see, there's a special feature to this love that Christ is calling you and me to have too. And, And Paul says here to Timothy, Timothy, be an example of a believer in charity, in the strongest of love. This love is exactly the same as the love Christ has had for you. You have that love for one another. We are to love one another. That's something that marked the early church out. It ought to mark out the church of Jesus Christ today. A love for one another. And then it will be seen in a charitable spirit. We'll finish off with with one reference. Let's go over to John. I mentioned there a number of times how this little phrase, uh, loving one another, appears in in John's epistles, we'll, we'll come to chapter 3. And, for example, in verse 11, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then also in, in verse 23, you'll find it again. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So John is pretty strong on this. As I say, five times you'll find that little phrase, loving one another, in his epistle. But look at First John 3, verse 17. Here's, here's the thought of, of, well, what comes out of this, love? Is it just something that's in theory only? It says, but whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? There's the question to answer. Thinking about the Saviour's love for us now is the backdrop here. A sacrificial love, an unconditional love. And then John asks the question here, as he makes this statement. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If the love of Christ towards you and me is a sacrificial love, then you and I are called to act accordingly, have compassion upon others. And there's where the idea of charity then comes in. This is where the idea of charity comes in. The expression of this love that Christians had one toward another. You see, someone has highlighted that this is something that is unique about Bible uh, religion. It's about love being a a requirement. We've noticed there how it's a commandment. We've noticed it in the Gospel of John. Now we've read it in the, the Epistle of John. It's a commandment. It's not optional. It's not something that's nice to have if if it comes along. It's something that is a command to believers to love one another and to seek to help others who are in need, other believers who are in need. You see, you go on then a little bit further than that and you think about loving your enemy. Loving your enemy. Again, that's something that marks out Bible religion once more. What religions of the world today tells you to love your enemy is not Islam. It's not Islam. Islam t- teaches you to wage war, jihad, against an unbeliever. Judaism isn't far behind in some ways. Hey, I remember seeing a little clip on YouTube not all that long ago on somebody telling a Christian you ought to be put to death because you worship more than one God. Somebody failing to understand the Trinity and the Christian does indeed worship only one God but three persons. Well, that was the attitude, oh, I should put you to death because you're worshiping more than one God, taking the laws of the Old Testament. But it's it's Bible religion, it's Christianity that says love your enemy. You see, someone said to love one's friends is common practice. To love one's enemies is the grace of God. To love one's friends is common practice. To love one's enemies is the grace of God. We're called to love our enemies. Be an example in charity. Not not just to believers. Yep, that's important. There's a place in the New Testament for loving one another as believers, but Bible religion goes beyond that. There's a higher standard because didn't God love his enemies? Didn't Christ love his enemies? Isn't that what it says in Romans 5 that we were quoting there a moment or two ago? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us but God commandeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, we were enemies. Enemies, that, that word enemies actually appears there. In Romans 5, i will not turn it go back to turn it up. You probably know the verse, but the word enemies appears in that chapter. We were enemies, and he loved us. Well, that's that's the, the standard that we're called upon. It's a high standard. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to imitate Christ. Yes, love one another. Love our enemies as well. Love our enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you, the Savior said. Maybe, maybe we struggle at that. Maybe we have a different attitude. Love them. Maybe it's the very opposite. We don't condone what they do. We don't condone the sins they commit. But they have a soul. No Christian should ever take pleasure in an ungodly individual going out into an eternity. No Christian should ever take pleasure in that. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Doesn't he say that in Ezekiel? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Neither ought we. And even those who are our sworn enemies, who hate us, who would want to destroy us, we, we are not to be like them in how they act toward us. The Christian is to act differently. Christian is to be like Christ. Now, that's a high standard, but it's one that we are called upon to follow, Christian. And one here that Paul is emphasizing to Timothy. Be an example of a believer in charity, in love, one for another and for our enemies.